Hello everyone, my name is Temi. I am a development management student here at the London School of Economics and it's my absolute pleasure to welcome to the podcast today Kate Warren who is the Executive Vice President at Derex, the premier media platform for, develop- for the development community and Kate looks after the recruitment and talent um, services that Derex offers. I'm going to give her an opportunity to introduce introduce herself to us in the next couple of minutes. Um, This podcast is going to focus on, obviously, career opportunities in the development community, current trends and opportunities that students and anyone listening actually can benefit from. So, Kate, um, over to you. Yeah, well, thank you. I'm really happy to be here. So thank you for inviting me today. Um, Yeah, so I am... Kate Warren with with DevX, and we serve over a million development professionals in providing news and career information and also recruitment services. So hopefully I can bring some insight to y'all today based on our experience working with a really wide range of institutions from large international organizations like the UN and World Bank to international NGOs to even private sector companies that are increasingly becoming more engaged in development work. So happy to share any of my insights with you. And I know right now is a particularly precarious time given the COVID-19 pandemic and leaving a lot of people with a lot of questions and concerns and worries. So hopefully can dig into some of those today. Thank you so much. And um, yes, you've kind of, you know, kind of hinted on our first question. Um, It is definitely, you know, as they keep saying in the news, an unprecedented time um, that we live in at the moment. So, I mean, from your perspective and your experience and your view into the development community, what, it's early days, but how would you say, you know, COVID-19 and the fallout from it has impacted the development community? Yeah, so it's it, it depends on where you sit within this community. But I would say in many ways the global development sector has been shielded from some of the immediate economic impact, unlike you know, restaurant or, or tourism. A lot of the funding has been obligated pretty far in advance. So there are projects and organizations that have funding committed. So some of it will be a little bit TBD. Um, but many organizations are finding they're having to halt their programming because um, they have work from home orders, their staff aren't allowed to travel, and particularly in areas where there's low bandwidth and not a lot of access to maybe internet that allows for doing work more remotely, and depending on the nature of their work, it has halted some projects and operations. Um, Definitely many groups are concerned about what that means for their funding. Some funders are being quite flexible in letting their grantees or their contractors you know, shift focus or use uh, unrestricted funds in, in different ways so they can still keep their staff supported. But definitely some NGOs have already started doing layoffs and furloughs. You know, Development in many ways can be a gig economy and that there are a lot of independent consultants that are providing technical expertise around the globe that really hinges on traveling Mm-hmm. So those projects are halting, but also we've seen some interesting cases where, you know, somebody who maybe would have traveled in countries now partnering with a local consultant and really helping guide them to do the work that they would have done. So there are a lot of opportunities here for really doing a radical, much more radical shift to local ownership, which has mm-hmm. been a big push across the sector mm-hmm. for a while. And right now is a big moment for maybe best to really put that into practice. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, global health organizations may see a big increase in, mm-hmm. in funding um, because there will likely be a lot of donor and funding interest. I do know that there are parts of the development sector that are concerned that that could just divert funds from other areas. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of that is still up in the air and to be determined um, and something that we're closely closely watching, um, but it's, you know, the focus of the pandemic response has been in the global north, and we all know that when this really starts to hit the global south, where vast majority of the economy are are informal workers, where there's much less access to healthcare and weaker health systems, it's going to be pretty devastating, so the community is really rallying and figuring out how to best respond, um, you know, assuming that that's 
only going to be coming is it with with the testing where it is now it's hard to know what the real situation is on the ground but mm -hmm. it's assumed that this is only going to be getting worse in some of the lowest income countries which are, are really going to need our sector's support mm -hmm. do you, i mean uh, thank you for that and you've touched on something um i'd like to kind of um um, um do a bit of a deep dive in do you think, given like the expertise in the in the in the um, development community around, for example, emergency response and things like that, there's actually um, expertise, knowledge, a skill set that the global north can tap into when trying to respond to um, you know the public health issue and how it's impacted the the, the um, communities and the countries and also obviously commu local communities in the global north as well. Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. And there's always been, at least in my mind, kind of this kind of odd wall and silo between what's considered domestic and international work. And I think as our world becomes more interconnected, to have that kind of false um, distinguish is doing a, people who work in both contexts a bit of a disservice of being able to share best practices and ideas. I have heard of some more internationally focused humanitarian organizations re-shifting some of their work uh, locally where they are operated and then being able to use that same approach and expertise for people who are used to maybe traveling around the globe to respond to different crises but staying home and being able to apply those skills where they are um, and so I'm hoping to see that continue I think it's it's good for we when we talk about the global north, global south, and I often get very uncomfortable with some of the language we use to distinguish between countries. And uh, you know, the truth is, is there are at-risk populations everywhere. There's massive income inequality that I think this pandemic is really shedding light on. And so a lot of the same problems that if you are somebody, I'm based in Washington, DC, the US, and those of you in London, um, that we, our communities might be facing similar problems as mm -hmm. some of the communities we serve in other parts of the world. So I, having more cross-pollination, I think is, is a good thing that hopefully we can see more of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with you. Um, definitely some of the, um, from a, from a London perspective, a lot of the responses we're seeing now is, is the kind of typical response you'd see even in the global South to like an emergency and stuff, you know, stuff around, um, you know, f um, food insecurity and, and helping to meet that as well. So there's definitely some learnings. I feel that the even local local organisations can draw on from you know internet more internationally focused maybe NGOs who have worked in similar contexts before just to learn how to, for example, um, you know meet the needs around like food insecurity sorry, food security, um, um, vulnerability, um, you know, there's, there's issues around, for example, domestic violence, and, you know, that's going up. Um, there was a report out of China um, that, you know, they noticed that domestic violence had, had gone up. And I think even in Spain now, they've, um, um, there's an awareness campaign just to know, just to let people know that, you know, people who might be vulnerable to domestic violence, let them know that there's a way for them to, um, get out of their can just you know a public service um campaign similar to the kind of times you know when you know in development in development speak sometimes we have like communications um or advocacy work that's being done to raise awareness around stuff so we're seeing you know bits of similar as you say cross-pollination in terms of the type of work that is typically done in the global south setting and we're seeing a similar thing in the in the global north but obviously it's it's very much early days and governments around the world are trying to respond um, at least economically to kind of to continue to support local local communities um i mean from a donor perspective and obviously as i said it's still very early days are you seeing any changes in terms of what their thematic focus is um is at the moment and the reason why this is quite relevant is because obviously um from from a student perspective and those who are looking for jobs in the sector they would want to position themselves and package themselves ready for the job market so for for example if there's more opportunities in you know for example is it um global health should they package themselves based on you know their experience obviously and maybe what they've studied they package themselves in that way or should you know that where where are the opportunities really given um you know this 
post well given the post-covid 19 world that we're going to all come into hopefully in the late latter part of the year yeah no and i think that's a smart way of looking at it often when i'm advising people on where they should be thinking about where the job opportunities are is you know it's follow the money where where the funding goes that's where the jobs go and you know, so we actually, we track the funding coming out of hundreds of different funders and do a lot of analysis around it. It's part of the information we provide to the organizations that, that we work with. And so we've been closely following this um, since uh, March 24th, there's been additional 324 initiatives announced at a value of about 6.3 trillion to focus on the COVID response. The World Bank just funded 2 billion on it. So there definitely is a movement and more money going towards a COVID response. Um, a lot of these are focused on health system support um, and supporting just economic stability. Mm. And we're seeing a lot of it going to health monitoring and management, water sanitation, virus surveillance and prevention. Um, so this is all early response days though too. So I think we will see further changes down the road, sometimes it takes a while for these funding uh, shifts to be realized in the marketplace because mm. particularly it's coming from say a bilateral donor or some other that takes a while for it to even go through its budgeting and procurement process for it to be recognized as projects. But we are seeing that there are some speeding up happening mm. there. And of course, there are a lot of foundations that are more nimble that are looking to really be able to get funds out there more quickly than governments sometimes. Mm -hmm. can um but this is going to cause a lot of long-term economic impact right with the job loss you mentioned increase in domestic violence so it doesn't mean that it's only going to be investments in healthcare and health systems because you know it impacts so many other parts of mm -hmm. of somebody's life um but something that we are paying attention to and, and seeing if it does impact a lot of funding has been very like vertical so maybe focused on a specific disease mm -hmm. or issue and less systemic and a lot of that's just kind of born out of people's personal interests if it's a foundation or um you know lobbyist groups or advocacy groups if it's a government and so, no, different special interests and i think we might see more of a push towards broader systemic change so for example there are organizations that are working on maybe TB prevention projects right now and HIV AIDS prevention projects right now that rely on the same health systems that the COVID prevention project would. So it's, it's to really focus on those systemic changes is something we've already been seeing more of an emphasis on. Mm -hmm. I think that will only be spurred. So as you're thinking about how you can add value and where you fit in, um, I think thinking less about very specific issues and thinking more about systems and how you can improve systems so that it does become flexible depending on what the challenge and the issue is um, to be able to respond. So those are some of the things that we're, we're seeing and, and keeping an eye on. Yeah, that's, thank you so much for that great insight. I think that's something that's very actionable um, for people who are looking to, you know, you know, looking at career opportunities and how they might, you know, develop their career and development um, even from this, obviously in, in the next couple of months. Um, you touched on something earlier, which I'd like to kind of um, go into a bit more now, which is about the role of private organizations in the development space. So tradition, very, very much traditionally, you know, development has been the space of governments, um, DFIs, um, and then INGOs. But um, more recently, over the last couple of years, private organizations have um, come into the space. And I used to work for one uh, Atos Consulting which is, you know, a, a private consulting firm. But we're seeing the likes of obviously McKinsey, um, BCG, you know, work in this space. What role are they carving out for themselves and what expertise are they bringing to the table? And are there then opportunities there for people in terms of like um, career opportunities and things like that? What opportunities are they carving out for people um, who want to work in this space? Yeah, so we have a, I've been part of DevX for about 12 years now and it's mm -hmm. been really fascinating to see some of the changes particularly from the bird's eye view that we get across the sector and mm -hmm. I think one of the most remarkable has been real engagement by the private sector and you know in the past it was more done through philanthropy and maybe 
CSR and, and P, frankly, good, just good PR. Okay, we'll, mm. we'll donate some money to this cause so it looks good and we can put some pictures on our website and get some good press around it. Mm. And that has really shifted to being much more ingrained in their business model. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many businesses have a real vested interest in supporting the economies of, you know, if you're oil and gas, where you have your plants, if you are um, where your supply chain is coming mm-hmm. from, if you work in the ag space, if you're in uh, pharmaceuticals, expanding the markets that you can can reach. Um, so there's a lot of businesses that know that these are the growth economies and it's where they have a lot of opportunity, mm-hmm. but they need to make some investments to better, further realize that opportunity. So, you know, it's, it's, it's still definitely in their interest. This isn't all just feel good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but with that, you know, I think it, the shift is, it makes it more clear what their intentions are. Mm-hmm. Um, and the NGOs that I see that are really ahead of the game and thinking, about what their place is right now in our current landscape and in the future, the ones that are recognizing this and partnering with them and being able to bring their expertise. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the private sector companies, the people, if you think about just even specific jobs, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've, we've worked with a lot of these groups where maybe if somebody was an, an engineer for 20 plus years and then they're thrown in this role where basically they're doing development work. Um, so they really do want to find and partner with experts that have been doing and really understand how to work with local communities and the local systems. Um, but with this, there, I think, are a lot of expanding career options where you can be working on solving social, economic development you know, issues, but not necessarily within an NGO or working with you know, DFID or USAID in the US context. Um, and it might, it, it, the challenging thing is that the job titles might not jump out or it might only be, you know, 30% of your portfolio is working on projects that are in Western Africa and the rest might be more domestically. Mm-hmm. But there are definitely a lot of opportunities to work in the private sector and get involved. And in. I think the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals enacted, you know, really brought the private sector to the table and really thinking through those and really uh, I mean, from all of the CEOs that we've spoken to and we talked to, they really are invested in the SDGs because they're really aligned to their business goals, ultimately. Mm-hmm. And, and so they are really thinking about how, I'm not just going to, if I'm going to throw some money at this issue, I don't want to just do it for press. I want to do it that's actually going to create a real return. Mm-hmm. So the other thing we're seeing is it's really pushing this need for results and impact. And something that private sector can do that you know, governments aren't as able is, is to be riskier with their investments. So they're not answering to taxpayers. And so they're able to, I think, seed some ideas and really see what works and in innovations that hopefully then can be scaled to the broader community and other you know, less or more risk averse uh, groups are able to, to take advantage of. Um, but it's also pushing competition. So, you know, if you are an NGO that's been doing a very kind of slow and steady approach to development, um, you might really be competing against a private sector company that's moving fast, that wants to see results. They have embedded into their business culture that need for analytics and and data-driven decision-making. So we're really seeing that shift how the sector is evolving and the kinds of skills that professionals need to be successful, the kind of approaches organizations need to be successful and and to thrive. Um, But it is a really, I think, exciting moment. And you also look at, say, the tech sector, other social enterprises that are really thinking about market-based solutions to social challenges. Um, there's just a lot of different opportunities. So it's not just looking at the NGOs or the development funders. There's really a huge expanding ecosystem of organizations that are working on these kinds of issues where you might be able to find a, a career opportunity. Thank you so much. And you mentioned obviously about results and um, the fact that the private sector are obviously um, looking to deliver results and even the reporting around that and the need for data, um, data to support obviously their involvement in these projects. Um, I've noticed another thing that's happened is the, um, the shift towards impact investing. 
um, which I think I can we can include in this, you know, this new or this wider ecosystem of development. Um, what, what are your thoughts on the role of impact investments and what skills, um, what skills and expertise are kind of ideal in that sector as well? Um, that that organizations might be looking for so those, that that is those organizations that are involved in the impact investment space yeah no that's definitely and i i, I i've been trying to find a, a term to describe could have with the i would been not so eloquently saying non-traditional <laughs> development players um and because what's interesting is that often we all speak a little bit different language so think about yeah. impact investors a lot of the people in that world are coming from maybe you know private equity or other investment banking backgrounds and they speak a very different language than people who grew up within the development space yeah. um, so part of it is just really understanding that language um, even mm -hmm. though might ultimately working on on the same goals there's uh, a lot of really interesting things happening here i've seen even some ngos that are launching their own impact investment funds yeah. um, as another way to, to fundraise more sustainably, yeah. Um, yeah. which I think is really interesting to see. Um, and, and donors now, I mean, individual donors, because they see these models, yeah. if they know they're going to, rather than donate $100 and they could invest $100 and actually see a return, but also know that that might actually drive more results and more sustainability it's a better use of that money even if they don't really care about the return so much so it's mm -hmm. it it builds in these incentives for having sustainable programming mm -hmm. that does not have to rely on the benevolence of an individual or taxpayers through their government so i think there's some really interesting things there and really what we're looking at is is taking you know these blended finance approaches so there's no one silver bullet, it's not like everything's moving to one model, but really being smart about having all of these tools for how you finance and how you attack these challenges and bringing in different experts from different um, backgrounds that can contribute something differently um, and being strategic about how and when you use those tools. And so even if you are a development professional that doesn't you know, have an investment <laughs> background and isn't looking mm. to, you know, I mean, if you have that kind of experience, there's a lot of work there, but mm. understanding how that can be one of the tools in your toolbox mm. for effective programming is really important. And I think those are the people that are going to be really in demand that can be thinking not just how do I get a grant or contract from DFID, it's, you know, how can we bring in some uh, impact investment funds? How can we bring in private sector and maybe it's that they are bringing some specific expertise because they mm -hmm. run a massive global supply chain and so they're going to bring their supply chain experts in to help develop one um, locally that they're working on so uh, i think there's a, a lot of really interesting synergies but one of the challenges is that a lot of these different groups and people again speak a little bit different languages yeah. so as much as you can learn the language and how to speak to these other um type of people and backgrounds and organizations, mm -hmm. um, I think that is gonna be really a powerful skill set, which is almost like a softer skill set. Um, we've been often describing this term of kind of the future development professional is as the integrator. So you will have your, your expertise and your background and that's great, um, but to really be successful, it's thinking about how do I bring in other sectors, other people, other organizations, other tools and approaches. You don't have to be the expert in all of them, at least understanding them and how and when to bring them in. Mm -hmm. um, those are gonna be the people that are, are truly, truly successful in, in my opinion. Well, I, think, I think that's a great point. I think because, um, and I love the term, you know, the future like development professional, and there's this, this role as an integrator and almost like a connector of these different worlds. Um, and how to harness that. So I think that definitely in terms of the future and where aid, role aid or development is going and how it's, especially how it's financed, I think that's definitely something as development professionals, we do need to think about how you can bring in um, these different worlds and how that can, you know, because you, know, you have different, you have different stakeholders looking to work on this similar idea. So how can you harness all of that to meet the goal, for example, whether it's building, um, 
good public health systems in the global south, whether it's attacking a specific issue around um, um, a, a specific vulnerable community in a different location. And I think that that's a good way to seeing ourselves as integrated. I think that is definitely um, something that as development professionals, we, we, we should think about. Um, I, I'm, I'm wondering now, because obviously with DevEx and you, as you say, your bird's eye view, you've probably come across um, professionals who have many years of experience and then you have maybe the entry level um, professionals as well, which obviously from our student perspective, I'd say we probably have a, a, a mix of uh, you know, early career development professionals, mid-career professionals as well. Um, speaking first, obviously, to the, perhaps, let's say, the early uh, early career professionals, what advice can you give them as to, because I know that development can be quite competitive, what advice can you give them about, you know, surviving in this development world and, you know, how they should approach, how, how they, in their early career, kind of approach opportunities? Yeah, so I often tell people to, really know your value and what it is that you're bringing to the table and being able to articulate that. Um, sometimes I, but with that being very flexible and open to a wide range of opportunities. Mm. Um, I often see people are very open to a wide range of opportunities, which is great. And that's absolutely, I think the attitude to have, but then it becomes challenging if you're speaking to a potential employer or maybe just networking with someone or a referral you get, for them to really be able to help either guide you or be able to understand how you would add value to their organization, unless you can really articulate it, like what is it that, that you do or, or want to do. Um, but within that, being open, because I, on the flip side, I often sometimes, people that are so focused on working on a very narrow specific thing, like this is what I want to do. And, you know, that's, they have tunnel vision of just going after those opportunities. And sometimes, you know, it's, it can take a while and it's mm. better to just find a job where you're going to be building some interesting skills and getting some experience um, and then helping to pivot to whatever that, that dream job is mm. down the line um, because it is competitive. So a lot of times it's really just getting your foot in the door. And, and then once you do, it becomes a lot easier to transition and move and evolve beyond that. So um, really understanding what it is that you want. Also understanding what it is that you want helps you guide your job search strategy. Mm -hmm. So, and I realize this advice is a little conflicting and then I'm saying be specific in what you want, but then be really open to everything. But, <laughs> um, but it helps you if you say, okay, I really want to work on, you know, health system strengthening and in West Africa, maybe you speak mm. French. So you're like, okay, I wanna really leverage the, my French speaking skills. And then really understanding what, who's the universe of organizations that are working there? Um, you know, what are the priorities of the programs that are being funded there? And then what kinds of positions are there? What kinds of skills they need? And it helps you think about, okay, well, this is how I should package my experience. And then these are the employers that I should be reaching out to. And you know, don't just wait for them to post a job, Mm -hmm. um, see if you can find through referrals or just reaching out to someone, informational interviews, because a lot of the earlier career positions, because mm -hmm. there's so much competition, organizations tend to hire somebody that they already have some kind of existing relationship with. So maybe it's through an internship. So definitely mm -hmm. looking at you know internships. Um, maybe it was through a referral through one of their current employees. Um, because sometimes we talk with these groups and for an earlier career position, they might get, you know, sometimes hundreds of applications from all very qualified people. And it's hard for them to decide who to even interview. So they might um, make that determination if there's somebody internally who's can vouch for them. Mm -hmm. um, so really being able to have that strategic job search strategy that has some focus so that you're just not throwing darts everywhere. But then within that, being really open to different opportunities and not getting so narrowly focused on this is the only thing that I will do, um, that then you are passing up an opportunity that at least gets you in the door and yeah. gets you building experience and expanding your skill set. Okay. Uh, thanks for that. And for our mid-professional mid, -prof uh, mid, -prof mid -professional, um, 
mid-level professional um, mm -hmm. students who may be listening in, what advice can you give them in terms of obviously um, taking advantage of second advantage of opportunities and even just first of all even identifying opportunities that might be out there for them and how given you know the fact that they have um, some experience how they can leverage that um, to their advantage yeah so i would say in many of the mid-career professionals i speak to that particularly went back to get a postgraduate degree and so that might be many of your students in this scenario they are looking to do some kind of career transition so whether that is transitioning to a different part or focus of development or really completely transitioning into the development sector so maybe your experience was in a different context mm -hmm. um, a lot of that is really about thinking about your core skills and and what you can translate and transfer mm -hmm. um, so maybe you haven't done this specific job before but maybe you've done a lot of things that are very similar or similar or managed problems in a similar context. Mm -hmm. So as much as you can really paint that picture and talking about your experience, I mentioned earlier, speaking the language and translating your language, it's also the same way. You wanna make sure that you make it very clear how your experience overlaps with the experience they need for this job, even if it was in a different type of context, mm -hmm. um, but it relied on those same skills. So maybe that's problem solving skills, maybe it's, you know, doing quantitative analysis of large data sets. Maybe mm -hmm. it's, uh, yeah, so there's a, a wide range of ways that you can, can think about it, but it's really how you talk about that experience and describe it in a way that will resonate with, if it's a recruiter or a hiring manager and seeing why you would be a good fit for this job. Um, one thing I'll mention is that a lot of organizations, the first person that reviews your CV maybe a fairly junior level recruiter that is not going to necessarily be a deep expert in what it is that you are focused in. Mm -hmm. So you want the language in your CV to be really very clear and obvious that you have that experience. So that means mirroring the same kind of language they use. You don't want to make up skills or experience that you don't really have, but you know, there, there are different ways to be able to put things. And so you want to make sure you're putting it in the way that that organization talks about it. Um, okay. you know, one example might be capacity building and training. Some use one term or the other. So if you see that they really talk about capacity building, then you know use that word instead in describing your experience. Okay, okay. Thank you so much for that. And obviously, given the role of DevEx and what DevEx does, how can um, our students and our, and our student body um, benefit from DevEx and how can they use um, a platform such as DevEx to find opportunities, connect with people, um, what, what's, what's out there for them on that? Yeah, so there's a lot of things. Um, I would say, first of all, we have a, a job board that you can um, sign up for even job alerts, so you can tailor to get those, and I recommend you do those. And, and for those who are earlier in their program, I always recommend keeping an eye on the job boards well before you're ready to even apply, because it'll give you a sense of who are the employers, um, what kinds of jobs are out there? What kinds of skills are required? So you can be thinking about helping to build some of those skills. So it, you know, and the other thing is, is looking at even jobs that are maybe a step or two beyond where you are now. So you can mm -hmm. see what do those require? So you can be thinking longer term about how you build that um, expertise to be able to get to where you ultimately want to go. So really looking at the job board. You can also create a profile. If you think about it, like a LinkedIn for the development space. So we have thousands of recruiters and organizations that subscribe to DevX to search our candidate database where you can create a profile and upload your CV. And so they are, use that when they need to fill positions, whether they're home office or consulting and project-based positions. So mm -hmm. I encourage you to do that. It's free, easy to do. And yeah. we actually provide a lot of recruitment support to organizations. And we have a team of recruiters that we would do searches on behalf of other organizations and so we obviously use that as a, a resource so we want to be able to contact you when we hear of opportunities that you um, may be interested in we also i really encourage you to sign up for some of our newsletters mm -hmm. we have one that's called doing good that comes out on tuesdays it's all around kind of careers and and how to succeed as a development professional but even our daily newswire it'll help make sure you're in the know about what is happening and all the current trends. If you're thinking about preparing for an interview, 
um, these you know, just great resources for you to better understand what's really happening now in the moment in the development space. Um, we also do have a directory of organizations of like employers that you can search for. So rather than just looking for specific job opportunities, you can seek out organizations that are working in the countries you are interested in or in the sectors or on the issues. So it can be a way to narrow down that universe of potential employers, whether or not they have a job posted today. Um, and then finally, we have a, we produce a lot of career advice. So there's all kinds of articles you can read on everything from you know how to write your CV to how to face an interview. Um, and we do regular webinars on these kind of career topics. So there's a lot <laughs> to, yeah. to dig into, um, but yeah. Definitely. Well, that's good. <laughs> a lot of information to use for the benefit. No, that, that that's fantastic. And what I mean, given your experience, what would you say is the kind of typical work-life balance of a development professional? I mean, obviously, I know now people can't travel, but a typical development professional um, is expected to travel for some considerable part of their of their career. What have you seen as you know the work-life balance and how um, development professionals are able to kind of balance that and such that their personal lives are not suffering as a result of their commitment to um, to the work they do in their professional lives? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And um, I think one that has been brought more to the forefront in recent years. Mm. And a lot of people who work in development do this because they're very passionate about it. And it's yeah. very core to who they are. Mm -hmm. And so in many ways, you see a lot of workaholics, right? So people mm -hmm. who are have a hard time unplugging because it's they're you know, really connected to the work that they're doing and it's um so you do see that tendency mm. of course if you are say responding a humanitarian crisis that can be all hands on deck where you're basically working around the clock it so it depends a little bit on where you are say you're in working in a home office of an organization i think there definitely can be a lot more work-life balance there, you know, there might be a ramp up of a project where you have a few weeks where it's very busy, but then, you know, pulls back and you're not quite as busy anymore. But we are seeing a lot more investment and attention being paid to wellness and, and mental health and organizations investing in that for their employees. Mm -hmm. um, there is a lot of international travel that can be part of it, but mm -hmm. individuals who have those kinds of jobs and more and more seeing organizations, and I think after this current mm. <laughs> pandemic, we'll see even more yeah. allowing their staff to, when they are home, work remotely because though mm. they can have maybe more time with their families um, and having more flexibility when they aren't on assignment that kind of helps make up for that time that they did have to travel and be away. So, you know, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm a mother of two kids and I do travel quite a bit internationally. and um, it's something that I speak to a lot of other moms and women in the mm -hmm. sector about how you, you balance it all. And uh, I think, you know, we, we make it work. And, yeah. um, and I think that the, there is a more flexibility now in from a lot of employers on when and how you do your work that mm -hmm. allows people to achieve that you know, work-life balance that is important to them. And do you think that um, I was just going back now to the to to where aid is going uh, and development? Do you feel that um, there will be even post COVID there will be more opportunities um, to work in the sector across different um, themes? How do you think that that it's that that will? I mean, what what might a post COVID nineteen yeah. world kind of look like? Um, um, later in the year and then how do you you know and then even obviously that that much that segues into or draws on what you said about the work-life balance as well so what might that look like i mean yeah so i think very early days but yeah yeah i mean yeah still all of this is we will we will see um yeah. i mean i do think that already i'm seeing a lot of organizations that are um having their employees work remotely that are now even mm. saying okay well maybe we don't need to have somebody located in the office and we can be more open to remote workers. And so I think we will see increased opportunity there, which particularly as a lot of the, um, at least if you think about home offices of international organizations where they tend to be based, tend to be very mm. high cost living mm. um, locations. So I think that there could be some real benefit for people being able to 
um, live in less high cost areas and mm -hmm. because you know no, no none of us get into development to, to become rich so um, it's you know I think that that could be a good thing that we we see come out of this I do think um, as I mentioned earlier about some of these international experts and consultants that fly around already there has been an unease with relying on that model when there's a lot of local expertise to yeah, be tapped yeah. into mm. so yeah i think thinking about how um if you're an international expert when and how you really do engage and travel mm. and maybe there is doing even more remote uh, advising and management and really helping to build the local capacity and um, not necessarily needing to travel as much and obviously climate change concerns and such too have already gotten a lot of organizations thinking about their commitment and responsibility there. Um, obviously it's very expensive to travel people all around. So we could see that there be a reduction in the international travel that comes along with this career. And some people might like that. Some people might not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, as far as still funding other areas, I, yeah, I mean, obviously this is sucking up all of the media attention right yeah. now. Um, and I, I can only assume at some point this is going to to die down. And if nothing, I think it'll show how interconnected um, mm -hmm. health and global health is to so many other issues yeah, and how having a more systemic approach uh, is going to be really critical to seeing progress on the SDGs or any of the issues that groups are working on. So even if your area of focus is not global health, likely mm -hmm. a pandemic like this is going to be impacted by it. Mm -hmm. um, so really seeing how everything is interconnected and um, you know, thinking about programs in a different way that recognizes that so we can be more responsive to, you know, many are predicting there can be more as a particular with climate change concerns, more pandemics in the future. So mm -hmm. how do we, have better, stronger systems so that we can better you know, weather the next one. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think that, you know, way before even the, the, the pandemic, there had been, there have been some um, organizations working on systems change and things like that. And I think this is in, in a time like this and even hereafter is where their work um, come, becomes very, very important. And I love the fact that you, you know, put, um, giving us that advice around, you know, looking at things in a more systemic way because as you say everything is connected for example yes it's a public health a global public health issue but and everything from economic um, livelihoods um education everything's been affected by this public health um global public health pandemic so definitely i think this has made the case for why we really do need to look at systems and how you know those can be um adapted to to be a bit more responsive in terms of you know when if and when something like this is is it happens again i mean we hope not well i guess one of the lessons i'm seeing um or i i i i think leaders are learning is the fact that let's try and prevent this from happening again and um, if it does happen again let's have a better response for fast and quicker response to an issue like this so that's to reduce the impact on you know on society so definitely um the systems um, theme will definitely probably in the next couple of years um, play a major um, role in terms of how donors um, and other development stakeholders respond to the issues that that come that come out of or the fallout of this um, public health um, pandemic that we are currently experiencing. Um, I'm very much looking forward to this new normal world that we'll be in, um, just so that we know, you know how from a personal professional point of view um how the world is going to operate and um how you know how things will be done um, and how not only just development but just generally you know how the economies of the world will be run based off of what based off of the new normal that we might see after this covid covid19 um one of my concerns and this is again everything's early days was obviously given that a lot of the impact was in the global north and you know the fears around the potential recession or not is how this may or may not affect um aid budgets I and mean, we don't know yet um but i was kind of concerned as to whether or not this might mean that a lot of the funding that traditionally comes to um projects which of global 
um, sorry, development projects which are in the global south may obviously governments may decide to focus obviously on their own local communities because um, which makes sense. So I was concerned that perhaps you know we might see a shift in the in the global aid budgets from individual governments, maybe not from the big DFIs, but from individual governments in terms of their commitment to um, you know development work in the global south because obviously even before this pandemic there were there were issues being solved in you know a, a lot of it in the global south and now you know if we draw away those issues will not or those or those um sectors may not be addressed so i was kind of concerned i don't know if you have any view of that in terms of what the what budgets might look like or um after you know this yeah i think it's a definite concern um you know because I, I was hearing stories of a usaid funded boat sending some um supplies to asia and some personal protective equipment and end up getting turned around and decided need to come back to the u.s because they didn't want to um you know they're scrambling for internal resources and it, it you know it's a hard it's a hard decision right mm-hmm. um and if uh, with a huge recession uh, budget's going to go down from like tax taxes and the you know so there's some real concern there that i think the role of the development community mm. is to really be able to explain how you know we are an interconnected globe so even that might not be in your backyard it somehow mm. <laughs> is in your personal interest to be investing in different parts of the world um and i know some groups obviously groups are, are talking about that and, and thinking about that, but it really will be incumbent on the development community to be able to really talk about and demonstrate how it is just as critical to not leave some of the lowest income countries behind um, and that the you know, global north has a real vested interest in that and that it, they don't want to cause more continuation of the spread of disease, that we have a global economy that becomes interconnected, that it could really further impact um, you know, migration patterns, which you know, is a hot topic in a lot of countries right now. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, but I think we will see. And, and this is where many organizations have been on this path to what they've been calling diversification. Um, historically, a lot of groups have been, really been set up and built to respond to one specific funder, which is likely a bilateral government agency and wherever they're based which is not a very sustainable business model, right? If, whether you're an NGO or for-profit consulting firm. So many have already been on this path to having diverse funding streams so that if the political climate changes and that funder pulls back, it doesn't mean that you know, everything gets halted. Some have been more successful at that than others. So you may see this really um, hasten the potential closure of groups that haven't been as far along. We are seeing the larger organizations being able to absorb more funding, probably weathering this better than small um, businesses. We know of a lot of small ones that are really struggling right now. Mm. Um, so you could see some of those go away. Uh, but then we have you know, foundations and other philanthropic donors that are stepping up that could help fill some of those funding gaps should they happen um, and so yeah it's, it's something i think everyone's concerned about um yeah. we you know with context and the big recession in 2008 that was a big concern and we didn't really see major impacts on development funding and in fact we've seen a lot of increases since then so i will be cautiously optimistic um, but it could be a shift in where that funding is coming from and and what it's funding that we should all be be prepared for mm-hmm. thank you so much for that and um just to kind of close this all off and thank you so much again for your time um, and for your um great insights um this is, bit, this is another futuristic <laughs> question um where do you see um development development let's say in the next um 10 years Yeah, I think it's interesting. So one thing I wonder is if we'll even be using that term, that word, right? So um, we, if you work in international law, this is what we call it. I like to give the example of we have a reporter that's based in Silicon Valley in California and the U.S. And she covers a lot of what's happening in the tech sector, which is really involved in development. Yet if she introduces herself as somebody who's a reporter that covers development, they think she either means software development or real estate development. (laughs) Um, It's just 
that doesn't mean anything to them. And so yeah. she's learned how to talk about what we do, maybe in context of the SDGs or social yeah. impact. So I think because we're seeing really shake up all, all different kinds of actors getting involved, it could be changing how we even describe this work that we do and you know what this sector is. And um, so I'm curious to see that and if we still use the same terminology uh, as we are now, uh, I still haven't figured out what that maybe a new term would be. Um, but yeah, yeah, so but I, yeah, because again, there are people who are basically working in development now that may not know it. Um, yeah, so. exactly. I agree. <laughs> I agree, I agree. Even the even the whole um, impact investment, um, like, um subsector is in development but they don't term it as that necessarily so well not 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 every player in that sector does but um actually speaking about the sdgs <laughs> this isn't supposed to be the, the decade of delivery do you think that that by 2030 we would have you know <laughs> achieved the, the these um sustainable development goals are we going to wake up in 10 years to another iteration um or yeah. set of goals um to kind of focus our work yeah well i mean overall we're not on track and uh, this current situation is mm. only going to set us further behind i would assume so um without some real serious global action um i am skeptical uh, i still I, I wouldn't want that to discourage people from continuing to push forward and and trying um but i do particularly given what's happening right now um have concerns about our ability and you know maybe there's some that will be further along than others um but but yeah i think that's it is a real concern and then what does that mean going forward right so if we are aren't able to meet those goals will we still be able to get the same kind of rallying support particularly from you know private sectors and other governments that we were when we enacted these goals so that we can continue furthering this work um, but we'll we'll see. Hopefully, you know, hopefully I'm wrong. Um, but yeah. yeah. Hopefully we deliver and celebrate celebrating yes. something in in ten years. Okay, thank you so much, Kate, um, for your time um this evening. It's been lovely speaking to you again. Thank you so much for your insights. And it's um, I hope I, well it's Thursday here. What <laughs> they were recording this, so I hope you have a lovely weekend. And um, we'll definitely be in touch in case there's any follow ups from any of our um students. Great. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you.